listening to Low Roads and High Places, a study of First Kings, a sermon series preached at Hocassin Baptist Church in the winter of 2009. Today's sermon is entitled, The Righteous Will Live by Faith. And now, Pastor John. Certainly some of you are wondering, is he going to talk about First Kings on a day like today? And I will say that I thought about not talking about First Kings. After all, it's a big baptismal day. By the way, I should just, uh, let me say up front today, there are so many moving pieces and so many people that just loosen your collar and enjoy the time. Uh, because I, I, I really uh, believe that this will be a great morning and a great time to celebrate, but there will be a lot of people in here. But I was thinking about it. Should I, in fact, uh, take a break from Kings and, and preach about baptism, as, as significant as this morning is, it isn't every day that uh, we, we baptize seven people into the name of the Lord. And part of me felt like doing that, and then another part of me said, what am I suggesting by not preaching First Kings on a day like today? Am I reinforcing the classic misnomer that the Old Testament's not applicable, or that salvation can't be seen in the Old Testament? And I found myself asking, is God in First Kings? Yes. Is Christ in 1 Kings? Yes. Can we see salvation in 1 Kings? In fact, I am convinced that 1 Kings is God-breathed and usable for all things in this church. And so we will step in by faith and assume that God will show up in 1 Kings. Because the thing is, is baptism is not what church is all about. God is what church is all about. And I don't want this church to point at baptism. I want the message and the music and the baptism to point at Jesus Christ. So even baptism takes second chair to the Lord, and certainly it'll have its day in the sun this morning. So that being said, this, uh, especially for those of you who are visitors who haven't uh, been with us during this uh, sermon series, it's called Low Roads and High Places. It is a study of the book of 1 Kings as it relates to the northern kingdom of Israel. So uh, for those of you who forget easily or... Uh, Listen poorly, or we're not here. Uh, here's a very brief, of which all of those are okay. Uh, here's a very brief kind of catch-up to where we are. The Hebrew people were not originally given a king. They were given a promised land, and they were given a god. And that should have been good enough, but it wasn't. And so the Hebrew people cried out eventually. They said, we want a god, everybody, or king, excuse me. Everybody else has a king, and all their lives seem to be going great because of it. Give us a king. And the Lord said, you don't need a king And the Hebrew people said, you don't understand, Lord, we do, in fact, need a king. And so God said, fine, have your king. And he gave them a king. His name was Saul, and Saul was a poor king. He was uh, uh, turned turned away from the Lord, didn't express the faith in God's provision that God had hoped. So God revoked the kingship from Saul and the family of Saul, and he gave it to a man named David. And David was a good king. He was a great king. He loved the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. He walked in his ways. He had a heart after the Lord. And the Lord loved David. But David had a son. His son's name was Solomon. And Solomon was not a good king. Solomon did not have a heart for the Lord as he got older. He started out with a heart for the Lord. The Lord did everything that a God could do to embrace Solomon as a son. He appeared to Solomon not once but twice. He gave Solomon the blessings of all wisdom and riches and honor and glory. He said because Solomon, because of you are a son of David, and because you've asked the right questions of me, I'm going to bless you. But Solomon turned. 
And Solomon was a wicked king when he died. And so the Lord decided to take the kingdom from Solomon as well. But the Lord did it in a different way. Instead of simply transitioning the kingdom to yet another family, the Lord decided to tear the kingdom apart. And so he selected a man named Jeroboam. There was a, a prophet came to this man named Jeroboam. The prophet's name was Ahijah. And Ahijah said, because of Solomon's wickedness, I'm going to revoke or pull or rent ten of the twelve tribes of Israel away from him. And I'm going to give them to you, Jeroboam. And Ahijah said it with these kinds of words. He said, Jeroboam, if you walk in the ways, the Lord's speaking, if you walk in my ways and follow my statutes and my commands, and if you do as my servant David did, then I will bless you as I bless David. In fact, your dynasty, your kingship, your reign will be as King David's. And so what happened is the kingdom is split. Jeroboam in the north gets ten tribes, and we call that nation Israel. And the two tribes in the south are known as Judah. And our study, these ten weeks, are on what happened, the rise and fall of Israel in the north. Now, as we've been going through, we started in the uh, 11th and 12th chapters, where we're moving today to a new place, a new kind of history of Israel. We've been pretty methodical. We've spent three Sundays looking at King Jeroboam. But what's happening now is the Bible is going to start to speed up. It's kind of like uh, if, you've ever, if you ever watched WHYY, which I'm a WHYY watcher, I must confess. And this could be on any channel, so I, whatever. But you'll see a, sometimes you'll see on a nature show a picture of a flower, um, and, but they want to show you kind of the growth process of the flower. So they don't just film the flower because you could watch it for 12 hours and never see anything. They, they, it's like a collection of a picture taken every 5 or 10 or 20 minutes. Have you ever seen that? And so it's almost like they, for a week or a day or however long it is that they want to follow a process like that of a flower or of clouds building up. They'll take a snapshot, snapshot, snapshot. And so what happens is when you watch it, time is compressed and you can actually experience what's happening. Then it becomes meaningful because if WHYY put on a documentary about how flowers grow and you just sat there and watched one, nobody would watch it. We would all turn the, ch most of us would turn the channel off. Uh, if there was weather on the bottom, my dad might leave it on. But, uh, but most of us would turn this channel off. Well, that's what the book of Kings is about to do. The book of Kings is about to say, you might not see what's happening here if we just went through day by day by day. And so the Bible begins to accelerate the account of Israel. So in, this morning we're going to go through about 60 years of kings. Because the Bible wants to say, because when I speed it up, you'll see what's happening. And so if you would, open your Bibles to the 14th chapter of 1 Kings. In the 14th chapter of 1 Kings, we'll find King Jeroboam at the end of his 22nd year of reign. And there's crisis in the house of Jeroboam. Jeroboam has a son, we assume, uh, scholars assume that this son is, is the heir to the throne. His name is Abijah, not Ahijah. The prophet's name is Ahijah. The son's name is Abijah. Abijah falls ill. And as often happens with people who have turned their backs on God, as many of us know, we turn our backs on the Lord until crisis hits. 
And then when we're all alone and we're at the end of our road and everything, every idol we invested our love and, 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 our, and our lusts in, every, all the other places that we placed our hope, when they fail, what happens? At the very last second, we run back to God. And so that's what Jeroboam does. 22 years, he hasn't gone to a, he has not worshipped Yahweh. He hasn't done anything godly at all. Zero. And in the 22nd year, the very last year of his reign, his son falls ill and he says to his wife, you need to go see Ahijah the prophet. The prophet who called me into this kingdom. Go see him and see. And, and the expression is almost, go see if something can be done about our son. And so his wife dresses up in a disguise so as not to be noticed. The last thing you'd want to see is the queen of Jeroboam actually petitioning Yahweh for anything. And she goes, sets off to see Ahijah. Now Ahijah knows, the Lord comes to Ahijah and says, Jeroboam's wife is going to come see you and is going to ask about her son. And so he says, he tells Ahijah what to say when he gets there. And so we'll start in the sixth verse of the 14th chapter. And I'll read to verse 16. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, notice this, this is fantastic. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? Notice what he says. He says, I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off Jeroboam, every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in the city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried, because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Yes, even now. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from the good land that he gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river because they provoke the Lord to anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and caused Israel to commit. Imagine for a second how severe the punishment must be if the blessing of the Lord is, I'm going to take Abijah's life because I love him. That's the curse against Jeroboam. The Lord says, I'm going to take your son Abijah's life because he, at least he'll be buried, at least he'll be mourned. The, the fate of the rest of the house of Jeroboam is nothing but despair. That is the wickedness of Jeroboam. Now the Bible speeds up. So you'll see here in a second, it talks about Rehoboam and, and Abijah, the kings of Judah. I want to say, and, and I commend you to the bulletin, uh, the way the kings converses is it talks a little about Israel and it talks a little about Judah. So this conversation about the kings in Judah is kind of like super friends. Meanwhile, back at the hall of justice, 
is what's going on here, okay? So down south of the Hall of Justice, this is going on. But if you turn to the 15th chapter, verse 25, it picks back up with the next king of Israel. And his name is Nadab. Nadab is the son of Jeroboam. And he reigns for two years. And this is the summary of Nadab's life in verse 25 and 26. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asah, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he caused Israel to commit. That's essentially all we learn about Nadab. The rest of the account of Nadab is how he got assassinated. And then there's always at the very end of these accounts, but if, if you want to know anything else about these kings, you can go read them in the books of the Annals of the Kings, which none of us have. None of us have found these things. But the summary is, Nadab did evil in the eyes of the Lord and, in, and, and walked in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. So Bashah, who's from the tribe of Issachar, assassinates Nadab. And Bashah becomes king, and Bashah reigns for 24 years. And this is the summary of the life of Bashah. It's the 33rd verse of chapter 15. In the third year of Asah, king of Judah, Bashah, son of Ahijah, became king of all Israel in, Tiz- in Terzah. And he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Now, not much else is said about Bashah, except that it seems that God tried to enter into a covenant relationship with Bashah like he did with Jeroboam. In fact, there's a prophet, his name's Yehu, he shows up and he says, he says these words in the second verse of the 16th chapter, speaking to Bashah, I lifted you up from the dust and made you leader of my people, Israel, but you walked in the ways of Jeroboam and caused my people of Israel to sin and to provoke me to anger by their sins. So I am about to consume Bashah and the house and I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Dogs will eat those belonging to Bashah, who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. And so it seems that God tried to give yet another chance to another family. Jeroboam failed, well, I'll try Bashah and his line. And that family fails. And God says, you will suffer the same consequences. And so what we see is Jeroboam reigns 22 years. His son takes over, survives two years before he's assassinated. What do we see here? Bashah reigns 24 years. His son Elah takes over, and in the second year of his reign, he becomes assassinated. The same thing happens. Elah becomes the next king of Israel. And this is what's said of Elah's life. Very little, in fact, except that he's a drunk. In the twelfth verse, earlier he gets assassinated while he's in a drunken stupor in in a friend's house. But this is what's said about Elah. Zimri is the guy who kills him. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Bashah in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken against Bashah through the prophet Yehu because of all the sins of Bashah and his son Elah committed and they caused Israel to commit so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. That's Elah. We're now about 40 years in. Then Zimri comes along. Zimri is king over Israel for guess what? Seven days. I think, there's, I think there's sarcasm even in the way the narrator writes it. He reigned over Israel for seven days. That's not possible. That's not possible. What happens is Zimri assassinates Elah in his drunken stupor. When the army hears about it, the army goes, what? And the army turns to their commander, Omri, and they say, you are a king, not Zimri. 
And so Omri rises up and goes and kills Zimri. So seven days, seven days, Zimri reigns, quote unquote, over the house of Israel. But this is what the Lord, this is how the Lord summarizes Zimri's reign. The 18th verse. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him. So he died. Because of the sins he had committed doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam and of the sins he had committed and had caused Israel to commit. Seven days and he has the same summary of all the other kings. Jeroboam is deposed because he walks in the way of Jeroboam doing wickedness. His son Nadab is, is dethroned because he walks in the ways of Jeroboam and the sins that he caused his people to commit. Bashah is taken away because of the sins and his wickedness, walking in the way of Jeroboam. Eli is taken away. Zimri is taken away. And then we get to Omri. And Omri becomes king. And he reigns for 12 years. And this is what it says about Omri. It's a 25th verse. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. He sinned more than all those who had come before him. Now the duration of this time from Jeroboam to Omri is about 62 years. And I think if you, we were, for the historians in this room, if you're asking about a true history, you have to ask yourself, what else did these kings do? Certainly they did something besides walking in the ways of Jeroboam and leading their people into wickedness. I mean, they must have raised armies or levied taxes or, or made alliances. They must have fought wars. Whatever it is kings do, they did. But we don't read about it here. In fact, the Bible kind of addressed it as, if you want to know anything they did, go to some other book. But the Bible gives a summary they did evil in the eyes of the Lord by walking in the ways of Jeroboam and committing his sins. And this brings us to the first point this morning, which is God writes your history. God writes your history. No matter what you do, no matter what you do in life, no matter the kind of epitaph that you're carving for your gravestone, God carves your gravestone. All the things that you do at work, all the things you do in your family, your accomplishments, the long Christmas letter of your life gets pitched out and God writes your gravestone. That's it. If there's a way to walk into the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's to first know that God and God alone writes your history. Who else with the finger carves into the stone but God? He writes your gravestone. We stopped with Omri, didn't we? There's one more, and his name is Ahab. Let me read about Ahab, starting in verse 29. In the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab's son Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Ashrapol and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings in Israel before him. 
Let me read 31 and 32 for you again. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So far, the sin of Jeroboam has been to co-opt God. Jeroboam took Yahweh and said, I am not content with this vision of Yahweh. I am not content with what Yahweh is calling me to do, how he's calling me to live, so I will cast my own version of Yahweh as a golden calf, and I will pitch this to the people. And this version of God, this version of Yahweh will accommodate us, will give us what we want, when we want, how we want it. I will determine who the priests of my Yahweh are. I will determine when the festivals of my Yahweh are held. I will determine where my Yahweh is worshipped. That's what Jeroboam did. Ahab has nothing to do with Yahweh. He's not co-opting Yahweh. He's not accommodating Yahweh. He is abandoning Yahweh. So what happens? Ahab's father does actually, believe it or not, in, in the worldly sense, Omri should have a fairly significant history told about him. It lets you know how, how singular God's concern is in our life that he doesn't tell us anything about Omri. Because Omri was significant. But Omri does one thing that the Bible talks about is he moves the capital of Israel from Terzah to Samaria. And he builds this city on a hill. Now, Samaria, the, the city on a hill there, uh, for, tactically speaking, was a, was a stroke of genius. It saves Israel time and time again. But it also gives Israel a capital city akin to Judah. Judah has Jerusalem, the mighty city on a hill. And in the city on the hill is the mighty temple of Yahweh. And what do we see under Ahab? We see under Ahab that Samaria, Israel, has this mighty city on a hill called Samaria. And in this mighty city on a hill is what? A temple. And who's it for? Baal. Yahweh is nowhere to be seen. Now, by the time we get to Ahab, the Bible slows back down again, so we'll have time to say bad stuff about Ahab for weeks. But uh, needless to say, between Ahab and Jezebel, they don't come any worse. But what you see is, if you look, if you start at Jeroboam, and we go to Ahab, what we begin to see, when the Bible finally speeds up, when the shutter speed of Scripture is kind of accelerated, we see that things aren't just bad, we see a trend, we see a trajectory. If things go from bad with Jeroboam, to worse with Omri, to it can't get any worse, with Ahab. In fact, his wife Jezebel actively hunted and pursued prophets and followers of God to kill them. That was what it was. By the time you get to Ahab, it is illegal to worship God in Israel. Just think of that. It is illegal. Jeroboam says, let me offer you a different version of Yahweh. Ahab and Jezebel say, don't even let me catch you praying to Yahweh. That's the trajectory that's been pitched. But from, from Jeroboam Bashah, Elah, Zimri, Omri, when you time you get to Ahab, you see that this, there's a trajectory of sin. And I'm here this morning to say that that trajectory of sin was set by Jeroboam. Youth, if we think that we can co-op or manipulate God or kind of deal with the percentage of God that's comfortable with us and it not get worse, you're wrong. We cannot worship anything other than God unless we set ourselves on a path to be worshiping no God at all. And that's the Christian life. Sometimes in our Christian life we think that we're trying to worship God, but we, we'll, we'll take everything about God but this one thing. 
I'll take everything about God but the fact that he says that he wants me to wait until I'm married. Or I'll take everything about God except for the fact that he says that I not, ought not to be a lover of money. Or I'll take everything about God except for the fact that I, I stare in the mirror with my makeup kit all day long. We want to take everything about God but one thing. And we think that, that that's a steady state existence. But God says, no, we are always on a trajectory. The second you take something away from God, you are moving. We are people who move through life. It's not one decision that sets us outside of God. It's one decision that sets a course away from God or a decision that sets a course towards God. We don't just stand here. We're like sharks. We have to swim to breathe. We're always moving, and we're either moving towards God or away from God. In the flying world, we joke about helicopter... Well, I joke about helicopter pilots. I, good on you if you're a helicopter pilot. I, you know, I think it's cool, but it's, it's in the genetics of a fixed-wing pilot to bust on helicopter pilots. <laughs> and so that is my curse. I'm sorry. But one thing we often say is, if a helicopter pilot, if a helicopter is... If he gets lost... And where am I? He can land, step out, check the street sign. (laughs) If you're in an airplane, you can't hop out. In an airplane, it is always moving. So if you're off course, every second that passes, you're offer. (laughs) It's worsening and worsening and worsening. We are always, when you're flying, you are either moving towards the target or you're moving away from the target. You're either deviating from the threat or you're penetrating into the threat. That's, that's just life. Life is like flying. We are never just standing. We can't just stop life and say, I'm going to stop, make this, this decision in a vacuum that will have no other effect on the rest of my life, and then move on. No, we are always moving. When we make this decision in life, whether it is to disobey God or to walk from God, that sets our course. And that's what you see here. You see it. Jeroboam sets the course by saying, you don't need to worship God in his fullness. And Ahab brings it to the obvious place which says, what are you doing worshiping God? You can look almost anywhere in this world, almost anywhere in America and see this. That the second communities of faith compromise on God is the second they set their course for worshiping no God at all, whether it's two generations or three generations away. In fact, the young generation in our church is finding God for the first time again. My, my colleagues, they don't know who Abraham is because two or three generations before them, those generations just assumed, I go to church on Sunday, I'm a believer, I'm safe. And so now that course has been set because we worshiped God, but not in spirit and truth. And God has said, the course has been set. And now we have an entire generation of people who are rediscovering God for the first time, who have thought they were Christian their whole life and have never opened Scripture. That is the trajectory that was set years ago for us. And that's why we're here. And that's where the 16th chapter of Kings takes us. It's, in the book of Kings, this is the climax, or the nadir, the bottom, the worst, the darkest moment in 1 Kings. It doesn't get any worse than right now in 1 Kings. There's no hope. In fact, if you were an Israelite sitting there in in, in exile, right? Because remember, that's why the book of 1 Kings is written, is to explain to the Jews why they are in exile. If you're in exile, this might be the place in the story where you go, see, that's where God abandoned us, right here. 
Because you know, my uncle, my uncle Fred lived in Israel, and he was a godly man. And during all this darkness, where was God? Where was God when Jezebel was hunting him down, huh? Where was God when there were, there were people in Israel who would have turned to the Lord if somebody had spoken? This is what they're saying to themselves. But, no, but who spoke? And that's why the Bible doesn't end on the 16th chapter of 1 Kings. It continues. I'm going to read you one verse. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. Now, for Bible readers, you know that when the word Elijah is spoken, that this right here is the turning of a major page in Scripture. That apart from Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ himself said, there is no man born of woman on this planet who walked in the ways like Elijah did. Nobody. That's Jesus' own words. Elijah is the cat's pajamas of Scripture. It doesn't get better. He is, he speaks with power, he speaks with faithfulness, he displays a righteousness that is unequaled in all of Scripture anywhere until Christ. Anywhere. And chapter 17, verse 1, introduces him. Now, for the rest of our study in 1 Kings, we're going to talk about Elijah and Ahab. They're good friends, <clears throat> so to speak. So I, I'm just going to, to lead into this idea. But what I want you to appreciate is, if you were in Babylon, if you were in exile, if you were scattered by the Assyrians, if you're struggling to go, where was God when there's four or five or 400 or 500 righteous people living in a dark land? Where did God show up? The writers can say, did you read the first verse of the 17th chapter of 1 Kings? That at its darkest moment, who does God send? God sends his brightest light. At the time when it's like, there is, it cannot get worse, God sends somebody who cannot hardly get better. And he doesn't send him with an army. He doesn't send him with a program. He doesn't send him as a representative from the kingship of Aram or from the Assyrians. It is an alliance. It's a man. It's just a man. And it's not a man who has wealth. It's not a man who has these high talents. He's not a great tactician. All he does is believe. Every story you read about Elijah, he never uses anything to do anything but God. Every, everything he does starts with prayer, starts with faith, and ends in power. And that's what God says. God says, at its darkest moment, I'm going to send you a man who will speak life into this land. And on one side, you have Jezebel, you have Ahab, you have these 450 prophets of Baal. You have the armies. You have the whole state machinery designed to persecute the, the, the religion of Yahweh. And what does Yahweh do? He says, I will see your armies and I will raise them with a man. That's it. With a man. Now, if that doesn't prefigure Christ, I don't know what does. That in our darkest times, in the darkest place... When you, sit, when you finally are honest with yourselves and you say to yourself, you know what? God writes my epitaph. And when you're finally honest with yourself and you say, you know what? Regardless of what I want to think, my life is on trajectory. I'm either heading towards God or away from God. In fact, you know the language the scripture uses? To, it doesn't have airplanes, so it didn't sit, use the airplane example. Although they would have. <laughs> this is the language the scripture uses. It says, he walked in the ways of Jeroboam. Do you hear that? 
that idea of motion. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam. We walk in the paths of righteousness. What, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, follow me. These are ideas of a life being lived on trajectory. A life being lived that always has what we use in the flying term as some mock quotient, but just a different vector. We're always moving somewhere. And when we're finally honest with ourselves that God writes our history and that we are moving somewhere and we cry out for help, God says, in the darkest of times I have sent a voice. When I think about Elijah, and I'll say this in closing, Elijah is as good as it gets. There's no one better in the Old Testament. Nobody. And the transfiguration, who do we see? Moses and Elijah. When John the baptizer comes, what do we see? He says, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight paths for the Lord. He is Elijah. Jesus says as much of him. He says, that man is Elijah. What I find interesting is John the Baptist, who is Elijah, is but a voice hailing Christ. That as good or as, as, as big or as powerful as Elijah is, the if kind of faith he expresses, the kind of way that he heals, in just the next chapter he's going to provide food for the hungry and raise somebody from the dead. Despite all that, all Elijah is is a voice pointing at Jesus. That Jesus is here to say, in the darkest times, when you acknowledge your direction, I am here. And that the righteous live by faith.